I'm Keaton Fletcher, an assistant professor of industrial organizational psychology at Colorado State University, and this is Healthy Work. All right, I am so excited for our first ever double feature almost. We have two guests this time to talk about a recent paper published in um, Journal of Business and Psychology. And I'm going to get out of the way and let them introduce themselves. Uh, Jenna, do you want to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Keaton, for having us on your podcast. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Jenna McChesney, and I joined Meredith College as an assistant professor of industrial organizational psychology in 2022, so just last year. But my academic journey started with earning a master's degree in I.O. from Minnesota State University in Mankato. And upon graduating from Minnesota State, I had the good fortune of being accepted into Lori Foster's research lab at North Carolina State University, where I earned my PhD. And I now finding myself, you know, teaching IO just up the road is a really nice, wonderful full circle moment for me. But my research interests are quite diverse. So a significant part of my work has focused on decision-making processes and the influence of technology in areas like recruitment, selection, and career development. Um, And the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are often woven into this work as well. So goals like access to decent work, gender equality, uh, good health and well-being, things that I know that Lori will want to touch on here in a moment as well. But just for example, I've delved into topics such as women's interest in male-dominated careers. I have a chapter coming out soon with my colleague, Dr. Candlin Raid, that we're really excited about that looks at perceptions of applicants with various criminal histories. And then in this paper, I'm excited to talk about, you know, exploring the disclosure of job applicants' uh, struggles with mental health. Awesome. Wow. (laughs) Really cool work. Really appreciate it. Uh, Lori? Sure. Thanks so much, Keaton. Lovely to be here, Jenna. Great to hear your voice. Um, So my name is Lori Foster. I'm a professor of psychology at North Carolina State University and an honorary professor at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And at NC State, I oversee the 4D lab, which focuses on research at the intersection of work, psychology, technology, and sustainable development. And we think about sustainable development in the lab quite broadly. I think many times in North America, we hear the term sustainability and we immediately think of of the environment, uh, recycling and whatnot. But uh, Jenna alluded to these United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which some folks are familiar with. And that's the way we think of sustainable development. So there are 17 goals in all, and they span the gamut. They do include environmental sustainability, but they also include goals like access to decent work, good health and well-being, reducing inequalities. And a lot of our research pulls in organizational psychology, technology in service of those kinds of aims. And I think you'll hear some of that reflected in the study we're talking about today, because of course, mental health is such an important component of good health and well-being. I love that perspective. I you know, I'm also a trained IO psychologist. And I think in something like uh, recruitment and selection, the idea of human sustainability was not something that was top of mind. Um, But obviously, in recent years, it is. And I love that you're using the UN framework to guide your both of your research. And we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. 
So let's dive into the specific paper. I'm so excited. Um, as we were talking a little bit before, I'm kind of a geek for this type of study design. So um, who wants to give me an overview of what you all did? Sure, I can start. And Lori, feel free to chime in. In our study, we looked at how job applicants posting about their anxiety and depression on LinkedIn affected how potential employers might perceive them. And this question was really inspired from seeing people in my own network posting about their mental health online. And this seemed to be a trend that I noticed catching on really in the middle of the pandemic and something that I think has been continuing where people are just sharing a little bit more um, about themselves in professional settings, um, including professional platforms like LinkedIn. So um, I was seeing some of these postings and just kind of curious about well, how is this impacting their professional image or how they might be viewed if they were going up for a job? And so that's really what this study was looking at. And I think what's interesting is that regardless of whether the applicant was you know, a man or a woman, and regardless of the age of the person evaluating them, uh, we noticed that when candidates were talking about their experiences with anxiety and depression on LinkedIn, it had an impact on how evaluators saw their work-related personality traits. So perceptions of the applicant's emotional stability and conscientiousness were influenced by this information. When evaluators saw an applicant's post disclosing their struggles with anxiety and depression online, they were viewed as less emotionally stable and less conscientious than they would have been otherwise. Which is obviously not great, right? We're looking for those emotionally stable, conscientious applicants usually across jobs, right? Right. Wow. Yeah, I was really excited when Jenna came up with this idea and, and thrilled to be collaborating on it because it is such an important topic. I think, you know, an initial impression, if you're not working in this space, might be like people wouldn't really post about their mental health on online, not, not, not on LinkedIn anyway, right? But when you start paying attention, you really do see it quite a lot. And there's encouragement for it, I think, as well. Understandably so. I think there's a push towards reducing the stigma around mental health. And ostensibly, one way to do that is to open up these discussions. But we were really curious about the implications that this might have for job seekers. One of the things that we were sure to include in the study, in addition to the experimental design that you mentioned, Keaton, was making sure that all of the participants had hiring experience. So we recruited the sample from Prolific, um, but when we were out there recruiting participants, we wanted to make sure that these were folks who really did understand the hiring process and had been in this position before. That's excellent, right? You want that external generalizability, as I just taught my class about a couple of days ago at the beginning of the semester. One question then, actually, if you don't mind, could you dive in a little bit more into your experimental design? I'm sure that there's a lot of work that goes into making sure your conditions work the way that you think they are. And I would love to hear, you know, just a little bit about what that was like. Sure, I can I can share a little bit. And Lori, if I miss anything, feel free to jump in. This part of the process coming up with the experimental design and also the materials was really fun for me <laughs> and really grateful to be able to go back and forth on edits uh, with Lori. We, as Lori mentioned, we recruited a little over 400 individuals from Prolific with hiring experience. And we asked these individuals to view a LinkedIn page of a fictitious job applicant who was applying for the role of a like general consulting role. So, so each participant uh, viewed this fictitious LinkedIn page 
Uh, we removed any photos, you know, noting that we were trying to keep the applicant's privacy. We also removed, you know, the applicant's last name. And then the information that was shown from their LinkedIn profile included things like their work experience, their educational background, which, you know, was consistent across all all conditions. In the experimental condition, the participants were shown a page that showed the applicant's activity on LinkedIn or recent activity on LinkedIn. Um, and on that page, they saw a post that had been written by the applicant um, that said something along the lines of, you know, I struggle with anxiety and depression. Some days it's hard and it kind of trailed off like dot, dot, dot. In the control condition, uh, participants saw the same exact information, but with that post blurred out. So we didn't remove the post, but we blurred it out so they couldn't read it. Uh, and the reason we did that was just to make sure that you know the perceived activity of the applicant was the same across conditions. And so that was the first part of it. Um, so, th so they saw the you know LinkedIn page, and then we asked them to evaluate that applicant in terms of you know their personality and you know expected future work performance. And that was for everybody as well. Half of the participants, in addition to seeing the LinkedIn page, were also given a recording of the applicant's interview. And then the other half were not because we were interested in seeing how and whether um, these perceptions would persist when the applicant had a chance to perform in an interview. So was, that was some of the methodology that, that our study went into. That reminds me of another finding that, that I don't think we've talked about yet, but the impact of the opportunity to perform. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that changed the results? Yes, we were surprised by this finding. And Lori, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about this or I can dive into it either way. Sure. Uh, so you mentioned, Jenna, that half the participants were listening to an interview. So first they saw the LinkedIn profile, then they heard the applicant actually an audio recording of their interview. And the interview was designed so that it was asking very typical questions uh, that you would expect to see in a job interview. And the responses were somewhat average. They weren't knocking it out of the ballpark, but they weren't just tanking the interview either. And we were very curious to find out how that would impact findings because they saw the LinkedIn post first, then half of them listened to an interview. We were wondering, okay, is this going to wipe out the effects of any bias against folks who are disclosing about mental health? Or could it even exacerbate that bias, right? And we know from psychology that there is a thing called the confirmation bias where sometimes we seek out and pay attention to and remember information that confirms our preconceived notions. And that's more or less what we expected to see, that actually hearing an interview and keep in mind that this interview didn't say anything about mental health. So it was very, very standard. Uh, we expected that hearing this interview might exacerbate those biases. But what we actually found was when it came to conscientiousness, that bias simply remained unchanged. So it didn't significantly have an effect. When it came to emotional stability, I would say listening to the interview helped to improve slightly the perceptions of emotional stability of those folks who had disclosed about mental health on LinkedIn, but it didn't bring them back up to the impressions of their counterparts who hadn't disclosed. So the interview helped a little bit when it came to emotional stability, but it didn't wipe out the effect. Wow. That's, I mean, so important to know. Question for you then, as an everyday worker, what should my takeaway be? Do I not disclose mental health issues on LinkedIn? Is that what I should be doing or should I disclose, but like be informed? You tell me. Yeah. Thank you for this question because I, 
I want to be clear that um, our findings don't mean to suggest that people should avoid discussing these topics on LinkedIn altogether. So the takeaway is not, you know, don't post about your anxiety or depression on LinkedIn, but instead that if you're contemplating sharing, you know, these experiences, just to be mindful and mindful that this disclosure you know, it could potentially influence how future employers perceive you. To take that as a data point um, into consideration as you're thinking about whether or not to do that, um, and allowing yourself in some ways to be to be selfish and you know think about how it might impact you as you're kind of contemplating whether or not to share that information with others. Absolutely. And if I were a manager, what should I do uh, about this? Yeah, I think it's really important for organizations to also just be aware that when viewing applicants' information online, particularly on LinkedIn, I think LinkedIn can be seen as this digital resume, but it's really not. It's also a social media platform where other uh, potentially unrelated job information can be introduced into the process. And so I think organizations also have a responsibility to think about being very strategic and standardized with how they're using this information and thinking about ways to reduce the likelihood that such biases could creep into the process when when they're using social media like LinkedIn. Use but cautiously is... Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, Keaton. And, you know, we talked about what individual workers can do with this finding and we talked about what managers can do I would argue that we should also be thinking about what policymakers uh, should be doing about not just this one isolated study, but these kinds of questions, right? And my mind goes to a policy brief that came out not even a year ago, it was in September of 2022, put up by the World Health Organization and the International Labor Organization on mental health at work. And they're, you know, at a policy, international policy level, there's a lot of concern about this. And how do we make for a workplace that is conducive to mental health and well-being and supportive of those who might be struggling. So I think we can also consider at a policy level, government, civil society, uh, everybody needs to be involved in this conversation, uh, be using the research, conducting the research, sharing the research, and, and thinking about these things. One of the points in that policy brief relates to training. So, you know, so we could think about how might we train folks to help reduce or mitigate uh, some of these effects or some of these biases, you know, maybe a little bit more behavioral information and, and encouraging managers to seek out disconfirmatory information that might disconfirm something that they initially believe about a person on the basis of mental health or other characteristics could aid in in creating an environment, both from a hiring standpoint, but even beyond, you know, culture and climate of an organization that is supportive of folks who are experiencing mental health challenges. Wow, such great points. I am a big fan of getting in policy changes at, you know, government levels when we can. And I think, like you said, this is a really strong point. There are already some moves in some degrees being made. Was there anything that surprised you about this research as you were doing it? Yes, I I think... You know, we, we touched on a few. One, we were, you know, we were surprised by the findings around the interview. I would say surprised and relieved that the interview didn't seem to make those perceptions worse. We were also, you know, surprised that the disclosure on LinkedIn didn't seem to affect expectations about the applicant's actual job performance. You know, I think you mentioned Keaton earlier 
as IO psychologists, we know there's the strong link between personality and, and job performance. And so I think when I've talked about this research before, um, people are quick to ask, well, did the evaluators not see that linkage? You know, do they are they not seeing the link between personality and, and job performance? And when we look at the correlations in this study, um, we find that perceptions of personality and expected performance were strongly uh, related. And so it's likely that our evaluators value emotional stability and conscientiousness in the workplace. But it could be that, you know, at the same time, those who open up about their anxiety and depression were seen as possessing other, you know, more positive qualities like authenticity, confidence, and compassion, you know, traits that can be quite handy in client and coworker interactions. And so I think this is an area that's really ripe for further exploration and a good place for future research to look into is what are some of the you know, positive consequences of also posting and disclosing this type of information online? And my last question for both of you is, why do you do this work? So my interest in IO psychology really started in undergrad when I became interested in social psychology. I think I first really became fascinated by just how people interact, how first impressions form, how to mitigate conflict and things like that. And it was actually in a social psychology lab that I first heard about IO psychology. And it was described to me as the application of social psychology to the workplace. And I think that introduction really hooked me in. <laughs> and I would say now that the heart of my passion for this field lies in I think, the impact that work can have on people's lives and being able to use psychology to help make work have a positive impact. Um, you know, I think IO psychology and occupational health psychology really provide the tools and the insights that can significantly enhance people's career paths, their relationships, their work environments, and their well-being. So I think it's really gratifying to know that the work that we do can have a positive change in people's uh, personal and professional lives. Yes. <laughs> Here for it. Uh, Lori, what about you? Thanks for the question, Keaton. So I've been doing this for a while now. Uh, I graduated in 1999. And even today, you know, I, I'm still just as energized about doing research and practice in IO psychology as, as I was back then. If anything, more so, because I increasingly see the opportunity to contribute to the knowledge base and also apply what we know to big societal challenges. So initially, the reason I got into it was thinking about how many of our waking hours we spend at work and thinking, gosh, if there's a way that we can make that work better and create win-wins for employers and for employees, then sign me up. It feels like you know a worthy endeavor. And as time in my career went on, I began to realize you know, beyond the individual worker and employer, the larger scale societal influences uh, we can have when we apply our theories and our methods and our best practices to some of the big global challenges. And so that's what keeps me um, up at night sometimes and energized when I wake up in the morning is opportunities to contribute to things like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Awesome. And this work that you did um, with this paper definitely does that. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to explain it to us. And, um, and thank you for the research that you do and the contributions you make. Bye. Healthy Work is a podcast written and produced by Keaton Fletcher and Mariana Arvon, mixed and edited by Keaton Fletcher, artwork by Keaton Fletcher, and our music is Zero Microsoft by Steve Combs. 
Please like us, follow us, and subscribe on whatever podcatching software you use. And leave a review in the iTunes store. It really does help get us out there.